Well, hey there. My name is Pastor Tim, and you have found my podcast. I currently serve as the pastor of First United Methodist Church of Fort Pierce, Florida, and I'm so grateful to be able to connect with you in this way. This podcast is a collection of my sermons and teachings that I hope you will use to deepen and strengthen your connection with Jesus Christ so that you might go and transform the world around you. So kick back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode. know my name is Tim and I'm the pastor here and it's good to be in worship with you guys uh, today you know uh, if you hung with me for like the past two weeks uh, as I really just bulldozed through the book of Genesis congrats you you hung I'm, I'm proud of you so today we're, we're gonna pick up like right where uh, the story left off so if, if you remember uh, God called uh, one family from among all of the nations of the world to be uh, his covenant partners in, in blessing the rest of the world. And, and that family is the family of Abraham, and they end up living down in the land of Egypt because one of its members, a man named Joseph, had become a really important person there and had basically saved Egypt and the rest of the, the ancient Near East from suffering under a seven-year famine. And so the very next book of the Bible is a, a book called Exodus, and uh, it picks up right where that left off, and it starts out like this. This is Exodus 1.1. 1, 1. It says, These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulon, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. And the total number of people born to Jacob was 70. Now, Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and that whole generation. But the Israelites were fruitful and prolific, and they multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. And this is sounding like, yeah, this is pretty good, you know? Uh, what's happened is 400 years have passed, and, and this family of 70 people has become a a numerous people. They were fruitful and they multiplied just as God had commanded all people to do way back in the Garden of Eden. You may remember this from a few weeks ago. God says this. It says, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. And so the Israelites are you know, they're, they're living this thing out. They're doing a good job. Uh, they're, they're living out this mandate given to all of humanity by God at the beginning. And, and God is doing what God does, living into the promise that he had made to Abraham, which we talked about last week in Genesis 17, where he basically says to Abraham, like, hey, I'm going to make your offspring so numerous that you won't even be able to count them. They're going to exceed all of your wildest dreams. And so that's really... Um, just the setup of, of what's to come. These, these chosen people of God are, are living out that theme of creation that we first talked about. And God is living out the theme of covenant, which we talked about last week. And everything seems to be going pretty okay. But what happens next is certainly not going to be okay. And you might 
know where this story goes. But the book of Exodus continues on. It says, Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Look, the Israelite people are more numerous and more powerful than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, or they will increase and, in the event of war, join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to oppress them with forced labor. They built supply cities, Pithom and Ramses, for Pharaoh. But the more that they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread, so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. And so what happens is there's a new king of Egypt, a man simply referred to as Pharaoh. And he comes to power, and what he is is he's afraid that these foreigners that, that are living in his land, in his country of Egypt, he's, he's afraid that their loyalty isn't ultimately to Egypt. And he's right. <laughs> their loyalty is to the God of Israel. But what he does because of this is he enacts uh, like a state-sponsored oppression of them. He, he enslaves them and creates kind of this general hatred of the Hebrew people amongst the public of Egypt. And, and this is kind of um, just a moment where every time I, I read this, I think that we just need to pause. And we just need to, to take a look at, at this reality because this is a theme that has repeated itself in one way or another throughout like all of history. It speaks to our, our human desire for power and the lengths that we will go to, to to both get power and to keep power as individuals and as a society. And, and so this is kind of like the natural progression of things when, when nationalism becomes the religion of the people, when we begin to worship our, our government or our country more than we worship our God. We, we saw what this looks like and how this unfolds over the past two centuries when we look at the, the situations in Europe and in Asia. And we, as, as people who live in this country, would do well to, to recognize these signs and to reject them in our own home because this part of the Bible isn't going to tell us that this is like a good thing. So back to Pharaoh. So what Pharaoh does, even though he's enslaved the Israelites and everyone kind of doesn't like them in Egypt, he realizes that they, they just keep having babies. They keep becoming more numerous. And so what he does is he institutes a type of genocide. He, he orders that all male-born babies to the Hebrew people be put to death. And one mother has her baby and she, she hides it. And in a desperate act, she puts him in a small raft and floats him down the Nile River where none other than Pharaoh's own daughter finds him and adopts him. And that baby's name was Moses. And so Moses, Moses grew up in Pharaoh's house as if he was a, a descendant of Pharaoh himself. And, but when Pharaoh grew up, or when Moses grew up and, and he went out and he saw the oppression of the Hebrew people, his people, he became angered. He, he saw a guard beating some of the slaves and, and out of anger he strikes him and kills him and then he realizes like, oh no, this isn't going to go well for me. 
And so he, he flees into the wilderness to a land called Midian. And of course, uh, Pharaoh finds out what Moses has done and kind of puts like a bounty on his head. He's, he's intent on killing Moses. And so Moses stays gone for a long time. And while Moses is gone, like things do not get any better for the Hebrew slaves. But things are about to change. And it begins here with these words at the end of Exodus uh, chapter 2. And so it says, After a long time, the king of Egypt died. And the Israelites groaned under their slavery, and they cried out. And out of the slavery, their cry for help rose up to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God looked upon the Israelites, and God took notice of them. So Pharaoh dies, which means there's going to be a new Pharaoh, which isn't really good news because the new Pharaoh is even worse than the last Pharaoh. But more importantly than that, this is, this is really the good news. This is the, the turning point in the text, even though there's a lot to plod through next. This is really the, the central idea that I want you to hold on to like for the rest of the sermon and also for the rest of your lives. And that point is God hears the cry of these oppressed people, people whom he has a covenant with. It says that, that he hears their cries and he remembers, which really means to call to the forefront of his mind because like God doesn't forget stuff. So he pulls to the forefront of his mind this covenant that he had made with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob, that whole thing that we talked about last week. And then he sees them, and it says that he took notice of them. And that the word in Hebrew simply says that he knew them, which is a Hebrew idea of having an intimate relationship with them. In this case, it really means that, that God drew near to them. God felt their pain, that he empathized with them. And because God has this experience with his people, he sees that they are in dire need of redemption from their slavery. God remembers that he had promised them that they will possess the land of Canaan. And so he decides that it is time, it's time now, to lead these people out of Egypt and into the promised land. And so he approaches Moses, who's hiding, through a burning bush. And among other things, he says this to him. He says, and then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. Indeed, I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them from the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the country of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. You see, the cry of the Israelites has now come to me, and I have also seen how the Egyptians oppress them. So come, I will send you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. And Moses... <laughs> Moses is like, no thanks. <laughs> Hard pass. Not going to do it. I'm not, I'm not your guy. The people, they don't even know me, man. I grew up in the palace. Like, why would they listen to me? Pharaoh, he wants me dead. 
I'm not going there, dude. And God's like, no, man, it's cool. Hear me out. Just tell them that Yahweh sent you. It'll be fine. And Moses is like, no way, man. No way. I'm not good with words. I'm just, I'm just not a good public speaker. People won't listen to me. So finally, like, back and forth, back and forth. God is finally like, listen, I'm going to send your brother Aaron with you. He's a great talker. Um, he's going to say the words. You just do the miraculous things that, that I am going to allow you and empower you to do. And everything is going to go according to plan. It's going to be fine. And so I guess Moses just finally got tired of arguing with God or whatever. But he complies, and he heads back to Egypt. He meets up with the leaders of the Hebrews and his brother Aaron. He does some miraculous things that, that God has shown him and empowered him to do. And then he and his brother, they decide, like, hey, that went actually pretty well. Like, why don't we go on off and talk to Pharaoh? You know, God said, tell them Yahweh sent me. I told the Hebrew people, and they were like, okay, they believe me. So let's see what happens next. And so Moses and Aaron, they, they go to Pharaoh, and they're like, hey, we need you to just give us a day off every week so that we can go and worship our God, Yahweh. And um, Pharaoh responds to them, and uh, he says this. He says, but Pharaoh said, who is the Lord? Which is our English translation of the name of God, Yahweh. So Pharaoh said, who is, the, who is Yahweh that I should heed him and let Israel go? I do not know Yahweh, and I will not let Israel go. And this kind of sets the stage for his really, really very real physical confrontation, but also a, a cosmic battle between Pharaoh and Yahweh, the, the God of Israel. You see, to, to Egypt, Pharaoh was a god. The people worshipped Pharaoh as like the all-powerful one. And so what happens next is really a battle between the God of the Hebrew people, Yahweh, and the God of the Egyptian people, Pharaoh. And it takes place in the form of plagues. And these plagues are structured in like a super interesting way, but what they really do is they dismantle all of the evil work that Pharaoh has been doing. They strip Pharaoh of his claim to supernatural authority, to being a god, because his officials start, uh, his, his magicians aren't able to, to reproduce these miraculous things that God is doing. And then about halfway through the plagues, all of Pharaoh's officials start to desert him, and he, he begins to lose his political authority. And in the, the final plague, what happens is that this, this genocidal act that Pharaoh, his father, had uh, unleashed against the Hebrew people is turned back on itself, and the firstborn of each family in Egypt dies, including Pharaoh's own son. It's a tragic thing, and I don't really have anything else to say about it other than this is God's way of allowing evil to fold in on itself. And it's this event when this finally happens, that Pharaoh's heart is broken, and it, it moves him to, to let the Hebrew people go for a time. And so they pack up, and they head out to the edge of, of the Red Sea. You probably heard it called. It's really just called the Sea of Reeds. And when Pharaoh realizes, oh no, like, 
Our workforce is gone. How are we going to do anything? Like our entire economy is built around this population of slaves. And so he sends his army out after them to bring them back. And you probably know this story. Moses delivers the people through the sea. And as the Israelites get to the other side, the water collapses in and drowns all of Pharaoh's army. The people are freed from slavery, finally. They are redeemed, and they commemorate the occasion with a song. And what I'd like you to do is just listen to the undertones of just a few lines of this song that's found in Exodus 15. Say, who is like you, O Yahweh, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in splendor, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, and the earth swallowed them. And then a few lines later, Moses' sister Miriam sangs this. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. Horse and rider he has thrown into the sea. So for the Hebrew people, this is a cosmic and a physical victory. Their God, Yahweh, has trampled the spiritual forces of darkness. They say, who is like you among the gods? Most certainly thinking of the gods of Egypt in this case. As, as well as the physical powers that enslaved them, horse and rider were swallowed in the sea. They're finally free. The people are free to worship Yahweh, and they're freed from the physical bondage of their slavery. But, of course, this doesn't mean that things all stay well and good. Like, it doesn't take long for the people to have need once again. The, the very next story tells about how the people are about ready to revolt against Moses because they can't find any water. They're like, it was better for us back in Egypt. We're going to die out here. Surely we should go back. Moses cries out to God, and God delivers them fresh water. And then they're hungry, and God hears their cries and complaints and provides them with bread from heaven. And then they've ate so much bread that they're thirsty again, and they have no water. And God provides water again. And this goes on and on and on, this pattern, throughout the rest of our Bibles. Like, even when Israel is at its absolute worst— God continually sends them a lifeline with an offer of both physical and spiritual redemption. He, he hears the cries of the oppressed people within Israel, and he sends prophets to correct the direction of their society. He hears the cries of the people when they are exiled in Babylon, and he answers them, delivering them once again from the hands of an oppressive empire. But still... Even in the midst of all of that, God's people are still in need of redemption. Things just aren't going well. And then Jesus is born. Jesus is born into a world and to a people who face political, religious, and spiritual persecution. They're, they're pawns and subjects of the mighty Roman Empire at this point. They're stuck between this, this world of Roman and Greek paganism and this overly legalistic version of Judaism, the religion of their ancestors that had been infiltrated by power-hungry religious elites. They're oppressed by taxes, oppressed 
by spiritual forces of darkness and somehow oppressed by the religion that followed the God that originally liberated them from Egypt. And what Jesus did is, is Jesus came and he redeemed his people in a similar but different way than God had through Moses. Jesus subverted the oppression of the religious elites by showing compassion and love to those whom they deemed unworthy. Samaritans, Canaanites, Romans, the poor, the sick, the lame, tax collectors, prostitutes, all found healing and comfort in the acts of Jesus. See, Jesus might not have led like a physical revolution or unleashed a flurry of plagues on Rome or Jerusalem. But what he did was he cast out demons. He flipped over tables in the temple court. He may not have led his people through a sea, but he led them to see their world differently and to see their place in it differently. He led them to see the kingdom of God. And in his final redemptive act, he took to the cross. And on the cross, the oppressive political, religious, and spiritual powers that ensnared God's people were all overturned. The guards who had pledged their lives to service of the God Emperor Caesar of Rome declared at the foot of the cross, surely this man was God's son. The veil inside of the temple that served to separate God's presence from God's people was torn in half. Evil's power was overturned as death was rendered powerless through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. See, Jesus' mission was to come into this world and to redeem it. His work offers us new life. Redemption both from the spiritual death that we experience when we're apart from him and real physical redemption from, from the mess and the consequences that we make when our attitudes, behaviors, and our sinfulness just cause us to, to hurt ourselves and hurt those around us. See, Jesus is the embodiment of God's redemptive activity, which continues on in our world today. But the crux of this whole discussion, it still lies in that pivotal text from the beginning of Exodus, that God heard the cries of the Israelites and he remembered them and he knew them. See, for us, Jesus comes to us and he finds us because he truly hears our cries for help. He hears our audible cries and he hears those still silent cries from the bottoms of our heart. God hears them and God feels them. And so if you've never cried out to God and said like, God, help me, redeem me. I can't do this thing anymore without you. The invitation is open for you to, to make that move and to allow your life to change forever. I want you to understand and experience the life-changing power that Jesus can have. And I'm here for you with that. But a big problem in our world, in our, our church and Christian world, is that sometimes some of us, we forget that God still listens. 
God still hears our cries long after God redeems us. We become like those Israelites who have, have felt and seen the redemptive power of God, but we find ourselves wandering out in the wilderness. Just like the Israelites said, like, hey, we want to go back. We want to go back to Egypt. Sometimes our situation and our lives, they, they deteriorate, and maybe we start to grumble. We start to look back at, at where we came from. Surely it was better. Surely it was easier. Surely I had more money before I started following Jesus. Surely it was easier to just walk past those who suffer without caring about them, without thinking about them for the rest of the day, without being bothered in the middle of the night waking up and thinking about them. Surely life is easier if I don't have to navigate all these ethical boundaries as I go through my day every single day. Or maybe for you it's just, you just forgot that God still really cares. That God isn't like a once and done kind of redeemer. But God is and does continue to redeem us. God shows up. And sometimes, sometimes what it takes for us to, to realize this is for us to just, to just drop the act. Drop the I've got this all figured out attitude and just cry out to God. Just yell at God for the mess that you found yourself in. Realize that like you don't got this. You can't handle this all on your own and just let God in that moment know you. Let God come alongside of you. You know, I can't promise you that all of your earthly struggles will end because that's just not what the gospel is about. But I can promise you that the God you cry out to knows. Because Jesus, Jesus knows what it's like to be rejected. Jesus knows what it's like to be betrayed. Jesus knows what it's like to be hungry, to be tired, to be lonely, to be disparaged, to be despised, to be beaten, to be accused, to be laughed all the way into the grave. You, we, we worship a God who knows you. He knows you by name and he knows you by pain. So the invitation is to just cry out. Just reach out. Know that you have not been redeemed and abandoned. But rather, you have been redeemed and brought into the, the greatest love that the world has ever known. And know that being brought into that love, know in the very depths of your soul that when you cry out to God, God shows up. So let's pray. God, we thank you that you're a God who shows up. You don't just leave us here to muddle around in our mess. That you are actively seeking a redeeming relationship with each and every one of us. And it doesn't end that 
the first time that we reach out to you, but it's, it's a relationship that continues on for all of our lives. God, we thank you for just the witness of that that we find in Scripture that when Adam and Eve ate from the tree, you showed up looking for them. When Cain killed his brother Abel, you showed up looking for him. God, you showed up for Noah and you showed up for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God, you showed up and you redeemed your people Israel. God, we, we just thank you that you didn't stop there. And you saw that this world still had need. And so that you, you showed up here in our world as a baby lying in a manger. A baby who, as it would turn out, would find refuge from Israel down in Egypt. You showed up and you began redeeming people from the very beginning. You redeemed the legacy of Egypt and then you set out. You redeemed the disciples. and all those you came in contact with. And through the power of your Holy Spirit, you unleashed them to take your redeeming gospel message to the end of the earth. And we praise you for that because we sit here today because they did. Because you showed up. So continue to show up in our lives. As we go through this week and we, we just encounter the brokenness and the pain of our world, God, remind us that, that you show up if we cry out. Let us be a people that doesn't suffer in silence, thinking that we've got this. Help us to lift up our voices to you on behalf of ourselves and on behalf of those who haven't yet found their voice. Show us how to be your people and how to be your church. God, we love you. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.